welcome to Tech Tales. I'm here with Cody. Hey, everybody. Hi, Cody. Today, we're here for the last episode of the Road to OSX series, where we've been talking about the very long journey Apple took to develop the modern Macintosh operating system. If you have not listened to the first three parts, you should go do that because it's it's very interesting and entertaining and but i'm sure cody forgot most of what we talked about yeah i i kind of have also you say that this is the last part but i feel like you're gonna you're gonna spring something on me in the future and be like no no (laughs) there is a part five coming so in the last episode we talked about how apple purchased next in december of 1996 which gave them the fully functional modern operating system that they had been looking for for years at that point, and they were unable to make themselves. So they went out and bought one. And of course, that also got them Steve Jobs back and other products that could make them money in the short term. So they were no longer just you know, perpetually six months away from collapsing. It was really the ultimate Silicon Valley uh, acquisition. They got product, they got to hire somebody, Uh, they technically removed competition. I mean, this Mm -hmm. is literally the pinnacle purchase. So after that, in 1997, Apple announced Rhapsody, which was based on technology from Next, but Apple brought over some features and the design from the existing Mac system. And also this new operating system would run existing Mac OS apps through emulation. However, Rhapsody required existing Mac OS apps to be rewritten significantly to work natively. You could, you could run them in this compatibility layer, but if you wanted to continue moving forward and use all the shiny new features, developers had to rewrite their apps from basically scratch. And most of them didn't want to do that. Yeah, shocking. People don't like spending a lot of time redoing work they've already done. Yeah. The only public release of Rhapsody was Mac OS X Server 1.0 in 1999, which, as the name implies, was really only intended for servers. And it wasn't used that much. And while that was happening, Apple sort of refocused its development. And they said that a final version for home computers would would work a little bit different and that would come later so that's where we're gonna start from at the worldwide development conference of 1999 apple revealed more details about the home version of mac os x so this is when apple talked about the three environments they had ready for os x that for running applications the first was called the classic environment and this is what existing mac os apps would run in the classic environment was basically just a virtual machine Mm -hmm. apple also talked about carbon which was the updated version of the classic mac os api and this this is the big change from this is the big change from rhapsody because the missing piece there was developers didn't want to rewrite their apps but with carbon they didn't have to do that Carbon apps could run on both the current macOS and then macOS X once it came out. And 
Apple said on average, only about 5% of the code base for classic Mac apps had to be rewritten to become Carbon. Wow, that's actually impressive. Yeah. So rewriting 5% of your app to make it native for Mac OS X, that's a, that's a much better sell than please rewrite the entirety of your app. Apple also mentioned that like they wanted a really good test subject for Carbon to make sure it could do everything that developers wanted. So the original Finder for Mac OS X was written in Carbon. So that was their big test. Like, oh, well, if we can make the Finder in it, you can do anything. Which is also kind of funny because the Finder, obviously it's very core to the OS, but it's also not really that complicated of a thing. They were really excited about how the finder was written in this thing. And in the and in my mind, I'm just thinking like, okay, so they're writing a core OS component in what is essentially considered like the lazy option for making a Mac OS X app. <laughs> I, I get what you're saying, but at the same time, I look at Microsoft and what happened with Windows. So many of their apps were not built in .NET for a very, very long time. And then when they start switching over, I mean, and I kind of understand that because, again, you don't want to redo work that's already done and in good shape. But once they started switching over, a whole bunch of those apps actually got a lot better because the developers didn't have to spend nearly as much time working on on all the features and functions and just tweaking it to look nicer. So as a result of switching, they switched over to something that reduced a lot of that workload. I think Apple's point about having a test case for Carbon was important, but I, I just thought that was funny. Like, oh, okay, the, this new OS, but one big part of it will not be new. Yeah. The third environment for apps was called Coco, and this mm -hmm. was a brand new API based on that next open step technology that no one wanted to write apps for last iteration of OSX. This is what was called the yellow box on previous versions. And this was the the thing you would target if you wanted your app to use absolutely everything. During the keynote, Apple talked about the mail app as an example of a Cocoa app, because that was that was actually carried over from Next. So it was already in this yellow box Cocoa environment thing. Apple also announced the Quartz graphics technology for the first time. This is something they had developed entirely themselves that they didn't that wasn't previously on Next or OpenStep or OSX server. And this was the graphics technology that would power the whole OS. It was sort of based on PDF, but like this would be used across all apps. Hmm. So also really interesting is that at this point Right, like I'm watching this keynote and everything they're showing and talking about, they're showing it and Mac OS X still looks just like the classic Mac OS. This this was so interesting to me with OS X server, where we're we're getting so close to what OS X will become, but there's still this one single component that's completely different, which is the interface. Yeah. And like there were some rumors that apple was working on a different design language but at at this point in 1999 they weren't showing it finally in january of 2000 at the mac world expo apple revealed the final look and feel for mac os x and 
this is the big moment when they show off the Aqua user interface for the first time. Previous versions of macOS used the theme that Apple called Platinum, which was, it was very gray and didn't really use transparency at all. It used solid colors. It was very boxy in design. I happen to be looking at screenshots of Platinum right now, and it's funny because I've never used this. This landed in between the times when I would have used Mac OS in high school. And when uh, once I was obviously out of high school and many years later, I ended up using it as uh, actual Mac OS X. But in that in in between phase, I I look at this and it is very unfamiliar to me. But at the same time, I remember a guy I went to college with. Every once in a while, we would, like, walk by and look in his room, and he was the one Mac user there. And I remember seeing this and thinking, why is anyone bothering with this? <laughs> I mean, I kind of get it, but I don't. It was just the last iteration of the design for the Mac OS that had not substantially changed since 1984. Yeah. And you can... And it's, it's definitely visible because all the elements have like very little padding to them, which yep. was important in the eighties when we had screen resolutions yeah, of like res. 500 by 300 pixels. But now we're getting to these larger screens and it's not utilizing the extra space properly. Yeah. There's that. I also noticed stuff like the, the window Chrome, uh, the controls that would be in like the title bar, they're in different places and you've got, you've got little bits and pieces that are that look like they're kind of in the wrong place not just compared to current mac os or even old mac os but just it looks like it looks like someone didn't sit down and say you know what we need to fix these things because they're inconsistent or they're in the wrong places they, they just hadn't gone through those sort of cleanup steps yet yeah and that's i think that's why apple knew it was important that they needed a fresh start, not just with the technical underpinnings of the Mac OS, but they needed a fresh start in design too. Yeah. So I will I will send you the link to this Macworld Expo video. And for anyone listening, all the videos and stuff I share in episodes are in the sources, so you can go watch them too. This is definitely in like my top five of Apple press conferences to watch. Just because, like, when I'm watching this, I get the same... I'm, I'm entertained in the same way that I'm entertained when I watch the original iPhone presentation. Where it, it's historically important because this sets a design language and a way of using computers that continues for decades. But also just because when they're showing off features, it's so simple to us now. That it's amazing. Like, it's just funny to go back and watch Steve Jobs talking about this thing that, like, we're all familiar with now. But at the time, it was new when everyone in the audience is, like, going wild. Like, in the iPhone launch event where Apple spends, like, three minutes on stage just showing how you can pinch to zoom on an iPhone. <laughs> and everyone in the audience is like, oh, yeah, this is great. It's the same thing here where it's just Steve Jobs showing, like, minimizing and maximizing windows and putting apps in the dock and everyone's like oh 
it's great. So I, if, if you have the slightest bit of interest, I, I recommend everyone watch most of this because it's, it's entertaining. It's just on YouTube. So I'll send you the link. I got it. Um, <laughs> I am immediately blown away at the start of this this clip. It is it's the one more thing segment. Yeah, and one, it's halfway through. <laughs> yeah, I, I was gonna say it's fifty <laughs> minutes until the end of this keynote. Yeah, but that's where the one more thing begins. It's like, dude, no, that, <laughs> that might be the longest one more thing in in yeah. history. A little much, but okay. Okay, so three, two, one, go. We have been secretly for the last 18 months designing a completely new user interface. And that new user interface builds on Apple's legacy and carries it into the next century. And we call that new user interface Aqua because it's liquid. One of the design goals was when you saw it, you wanted to lick it. <laughs> and so we call it Aqua. And this is the architecture for Mac OS X. And we are incredibly, incredibly excited. So I'd like to just start off, you know, when you design a new user interface, you have to start off humbly. You have to start off saying, what are the simplest elements in it? What, what does a button look like? And you spend months working on a button. That's a button in Aqua. So a lot of fit and finish in this. In addition to the fit and finish, we paid a lot of attention to dynamics. Not only how do things look, but how do they move? How do they behave? And our goal in this user interface was, was twofold. One, we wanted to give a much more powerful user interface to our pro customers. But two, at the very same time, we wanted to make this the dream user interface for somebody who's never even touched a computer before. So let me go ahead and show this to you. If everything works, very few people have seen this until today. We've kept this very secret, and um, it's my pleasure to show it to you now. So let me first show you uh, what a control panel looks like, just some controls. So I'll just open one of these preferences control panels. This is sound. Again, you can see what sliders look like here. Pop-up lists, checkboxes, you know, radio buttons, checkboxes. Now, one of the things we didn't want to do was to put a big black circle around the button that gets activated when you hit return. So what did we do? We're using the fact that, you know, we have a gigaflop sitting here. Uh, <laughs> Maybe uh, maybe we can do something with it. And so very gently, we just dim and brighten the button to say, hey, this is the one that's going to get activated if you hit return and clean up the user interface. I OK, in watching this, I know that this is maybe a weird takeaway, but I really wonder if the reception they got to this keynote is what really kicked off that whole apple narrative with like the human interface guidelines the infamous hig and how it became such a big talking point to always always talk up their design mm -hmm. because to my knowledge they didn't really talk about stuff like this prior to that point and i i i know that they had a big reaction to this and i'm thinking maybe that was the moment where they realized like this tests well let's do this more yeah, and and 
like it's it's just funny everyone's clapping for like a button yeah <laughs> it's just it's just a it's just a blue button that's got like a little bit of a gradient everyone's like oh this looks great yeah so that's that that's our first look at aqua with all of these translucent elements and rounded corners on everything and a lot of blue there's a lot of blue everywhere the wallpaper is also blue yeah, well, Apple was very theme-focused with a lot of their stuff, so I get that. Uh, yeah. You know, obviously they they were very gray prior to this and then decided, hey, colors are neat. So the, the one thing that stands out to me here is I think this still generally looks good today. I don't know if there are many interfaces from 2000 <laughs> that you could still say that about we're we're picking from a pretty narrow field yeah you know at the time there was there was windows obviously and every version of windows at the time is going to look super dated now especially because even back then microsoft had revamped they they revamped in 95 and then it wasn't until xp that they did another revamp and mm -hmm. even then they were trying to keep everything sort of backwards compatible and keeping it all looking familiar not necessarily the same but familiar enough so you know things didn't really change in windows for a very long time well even you know windows xp came out a year after this and i might get some hate mail for this cody but i don't <laughs> i don't think windows xp looks good today for a lot of people, it's it was easy to understand where everything was, especially because Windows XP had more of a focus on large buttons, and it was it was also a little bit like Mac OS X, where it used color for highlighting elements and that kind of thing. But like generally, I think it looks uglier than this. I didn't think XP looked good then yeah. when it came. I remember when it came out. I thought it looked awful then i never thought it started looking good like that was one of those looks that never ever caught on with me do you notice the um the apple icon in the status bar is centered i was trying to figure out what that was yeah i kept looking that. at it and i couldn't <laughs> i couldn't tell yeah but yeah that's the apple icon so that was that was one thing that uh was changed before the final release was they tried putting the Apple icon in the center of the screen, which, like, I, I, I mean, I get it, but everyone wanted it back to where it was, <laughs> so they. Eventually oh, it was did definitely that. better on the left. Yeah, Apple, Apple could really take a lot of, a lot of cues from the fact that it, it keeps trying to put stuff in the center, and that never works out. It's pretty much always better if you put things towards edges. All right, so I've got a, a second segment of this that I will send. Play on three, two, one, go. When Apple shipped the original Macintosh, it introduced to the market an organizing principle called the desktop to organize your work, to keep track of things. Uh, and as computers got more complicated, i.e. you could work on many things at once, we have internet connections and email coming in and out and stuff, there has never been an enhancement of that organizing principle that worked really well to help you manage all these things you're doing at once. And we have come up with something really great for Mac OS X. This is the dock. 
It's at the bottom of the screen. It always stays centered. And it allows me to put things into it. How do I put things into it? Well, I can drag things into it. And it shows you exactly where they go. Again, it's that same, we call it the genie effect that the sheets use when they come out. And um, I can just play with it all day long, actually. So in this segment, Steve Jobs brings up the dock on Mac OS X for the first time. And it's a little bit like the, you know, the dock on, on newer versions. But there's one interesting change where each icon sort of has like a background. It's not fully transparent. So it's, it's almost more like live tiles on Windows where there's the icon, but then there's something oh, behind so generous. it. <laughs> like, like. You know, for example, the the Finder icon just has a white background behind it, but the Internet Explorer icon has what looks like maybe like uh, like it's in space. These icons aren't just it's not just that they have backgrounds, but they're clearly just squares like these are hard edge squares. Right. They have a, a hard corner, so it's not like this is rounded. There's nothing elegant here, but what stands out to me is. Imagine what all of this stuff would look like t five to ten years later once they had transparent backgrounds, but each one has a different background and it looks like someone just screenshotted and blew up their <laughs> screenshots. So the rest of that demo, they just showed off how the doc can expand and contract based on how many apps are in it or you can change the size manually or you have the option of making it larger as you scroll past it which everyone in the audience lost it for if i'm trying to analyze it i think the reason they're there's they're so excited is because this is one of the few instances anyone had seen of a dynamically reshaping interface mm -hmm. it's it's not that people hadn't seen various other things it's not like resizing icons really was that big of a deal but here was an interface that actually reshaped to your to your movements and things like that and you know i i get it it's not necessarily the most exciting thing in the world but at that point in history interfaces were very static yeah part of the reason the dock was so important was because Trying to multitask at all on macOS was a pain up to this point because yeah. it didn't it didn't have this right like even Windows had this back with Windows ninety five where everything you were doing was just always at the bottom on the taskbar, but that that kind of element was not on macOS. There was like a, a like a drop down menu in the corner where you could switch between your apps, but it wasn't as well designed as this dock. And that was sort of just a general focus for Mac OS X was doing lots of things at once and being productive. Like, I, um, like later in this conference, um, actually during that video, there was an icon on the desktop that was a bomb and it's just an app called bomb. And mm -hmm. it was made just to crash and, when Steve Jobs shows that off and lets the bomb app crash and then Mac OS X just brings up the like, oh, this app crashed box. Everyone goes wild again. Because like that was the other thing that Apple had been working towards for a decade was 
they needed an OS where one application crashing didn't bring down the entire system. And that was new for OS X. It had um, preemptive multitasking, which had not been on the Mac platform at all. No, it, it's definitely some big changes. And it's funny because all, all of it is significant only really because people in that in that particular time had had already had such an experience with Mac OS being this completely different, less reliable thing. Right. Later in this conference, after they're done showing off how cool Mac OS X is, they make a big deal about all the developers who have signed on to support this new platform. Over 100 developers promised to support Mac OS X, including Adobe, Connectix, uh, id Software, who made Doom and, and Wolfenstein in those games. Also, Macromedia, who at this time was making Flash, mm-hmm. Microsoft, and Palm. Good old Palm. It's funny, like, the last big chunk of this event is just a stream of bringing developers on stage who are like, yeah, we promise we'll make apps for this. Like, I, I almost think Apple was overcompensating for uh, Rhapsody, where no one wanted to make apps. Yeah, they absolutely had to prove something this time. And it's this is something I've said about a lot of companies in the past. At a certain point, if you screw up a certain number of times or a certain number of ways, people just stop trusting you and they'll they'll see every attempt you make as a likely failure. Uh, Obviously, it's hard not to immediately think of Google in this conversation. Mm -hmm. And as a result... Nobody wants to invest their time or money into your products. And so you have to you have to step up and actually demonstrate, no, we're serious. Like here is our commitment. We're proving it. Or you or you stand up and show, here are all the other companies that are already doing this. Don't you think you should be one of them too? So later that year on September 13th of 2000, Apple released the Mac OS X public beta. This was a CD that Apple sold through their website, and you could buy it for $29.95. This was pretty close to what they showed off at Macworld, but there were a few surprises. One of the big issues that people had with this beta was that it called for 128 megabytes of RAM as a minimum. And Apple was still selling a lot of Macs at this point with 64 megs. So this was a little bit of a red flag for some people who were excited to upgrade. And they're like, oh, no, <laughs> my Mac yep. can't do this. And this was actually enough of an issue where Apple had to send out statements to news organizations. And they said that they were working to bring Mac OS X to under 64 megs of RAM usage. But for the beta, they were like, for the beta, you know, we're trying to get a good experience. So, you know, if you if you don't have that, just wait for the final release. This public beta release included apps like TextEdit, Preview, Mail, QuickTime Player, uh, a terminal for doing Unixy stuff because now we have that fun Unix core, and a few other apps. But there were basically no third-party apps for OS X at this point. So, like, you had the classic environment you could run the old apps in, but the stuff included with the beta was basically all there was. There was, yeah, there wasn't anything else to play with besides what you got on the CD. 
um, like even the the default browser, which was Internet Explorer, that was still like a test release. That wasn't the fi- that wasn't a stable version yet. I mean, you know, that's going to happen with every new OS. It's just awkward here because presumably it's an upgrade or update. And you kind of expect some of your old software to work and it just wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Also, fun fact about this beta, the code name for the Mac OS X public beta was Kodiak, which was the only Mac OS X release not named after a big cat until 10.9 Mavericks in 2013. Hmm. So here's a little fun tidbit for you. So the public beta came out in September 13th of 2000. The final public release of Mac OS X 10.0 arrived on March 24th of 2001. It was sold for $129, but people who had used the public beta could get a $30 discount, which was like equal to what they spent on the beta. So it was like a trade-in. And when you got that, $129 $129 package. It also included a full copy of Mac OS 9.1 for you to use the classing environment with. Hmm. Yeah, so that was nice. And unfortunately, the requirement for 128 megabytes of RAM was still official. So those people who wanted Mac OS X to be lighter didn't get what they wanted. It could still boot on 64 megs, but it was it was iffy. And of course, like you'd have the Mac OS X and then like if you wanted to run classic apps, then it's more memory because you're effectively running two operating systems now. Finally, we got a public final Mac OS X release. Yeah, the real thing. Yeah, we finally got here. And I have a review from Ars Technica for you to read. And is this just out of curiosity, is this written by John Syracuse? Because I believe he wrote every review of Mac OS up until about five years ago. Yes, it is. Yeah, I think he wrote every review for something like 15 years or something. I I could be off on that, but he's got a long history with ours doing that. Anyway, okay, let's see. So, Mac OS X shows tremendous promise, which is a nice way of saying that the 10.0 release is not quite ready for prime time. This is most certainly an early adopters OS release. Interface responsiveness and effective stability are the two biggest fundamental problems, but missing features and compatibility issues rank just as high if you actually intend to use OS X as a full Mac OS 9 replacement. The 10.0 release cannot view DVD movies, printer drivers are still scarce, CD burning is not yet supported, even by Apple's own iTunes CD authoring application, And a lot of hardware, like my G3400 serial port adapter to which my printer is attached, seem destined to be orphaned forever. Perhaps the most important feature of the 10.0 release is the software update preference panel. A 10.0.1 update that includes a new kernel and classic environment, SSH support, a slew of updated drivers, and many other small fixes has been circulating on the net, and may be released by the time you read this. A regular series of free, network-distributed OS updates will go a long way towards making OS X fulfill even the limited promise of a first release of a brand new operating system. Let's hope Apple doesn't foolishly try to charge for the more significant upgrade due in time for July's Macworld Expo in New York. Should you upgrade to Mac OS X, 
If you don't already have a copy, or plans to buy one, the answer is no. Most users should wait for a future release and possibly new hardware to run it on. Should Apple have released OS X in its current state? I think so. Nothing stimulates application development like a shipping OS. Let's hope that the official release of Mac OS X also stimulates Apple itself to make improvements. As always, your feedback will help Apple in this regard. After you've told them, I welcome your opinions as well. Uh, and it's funny because reading this review is so much like stuff I've said even in reviews I've written, which is like, should you buy this in its current state? Maybe not. Yeah. But it'll get better because software can get better these days. Yeah. And yeah, you know, this was this was that stage where everyone was everyone had seen Microsoft push updates over the Internet and how good of an experience that could be. I mean, it could also be pretty bad, but whatever. So, yeah, this is this is a nice shift They're They're headed in a really strong direction and obviously they know that that future updates over the internet are going to make a big difference yeah that that ars tetica review is pretty much the sentiment that everyone has which is this is still it's a downgrade from os9 in a couple areas it's still missing some stuff that has been on the classic os for a year or two or even longer but like this is the first step that Apple had to take. Apple had to eventually ship something. And they did it. So, but now we need updates. Also, even after OS X comes out, Apple is still shipping new Macs from the factory with OS 9 installed. So, even Apple recognizes like this is probably not ready for most people yet. Also, alongside the final release of mac os x apple also releases mac os x server 10.0 which replaces the rhapsody based mac os x server that we talked about in the last episode and it's it's pretty much identical to the home release of os x it has the same aqua ui everything which is basically just like windows server versions versus all the versions of windows after they went to an nt kernel so that initial release of Mac OS X was in March of 2001. And by September of 2001, Apple released Mac OS X 10.1. So very quick turnaround on improving things. If you had bought OS X already, you could get an upgrade CD for free that was sold at some retailers. But if you couldn't find a store that was selling the upgrade, uh, you could order it online for 1995 so that prediction of hopefully users won't be charged for the upgrade was like kind of sort of true this update fixed most of what people were complaining about with the first release it had several performance improvements including a 20 percent speed boost for OpenGL, which was like you know 2d and 3d graphics and the classic environment that you would run older apps in was roughly twice as fast so this was a pretty important update it also had cd and dvd burning in the finder it had dvd playback it had a new image capture app for transferring images from cameras and scanners which 
sort of fixed the driver issue from that other review, kind of. And also importantly, by this time, more third-party apps were available for Mac OS X. So by the time 10.1 came out, we already had software coming from Adobe. Uh, we already had Quicken for Mac OS X. Internet Explorer had a final stable release, so there was a full-featured web browser. Not a good one because it was IE, but, you know. <laughs> um, you take what you can get. Yeah. And iTunes was OS X native by this point. iMovie was available. They announced iMovie uh, after OS X. I've got a review from Macworld, or a section of the review from Macworld for you to read. Apple's new version of the OS, Mac OS X 10.1, is what we've been waiting for. With improved reliability, dramatic speed boosts, many interface improvements, and a clutch of native software, this release is the first version of OS X that's truly ready for general use. Although Mac OS X is still not a feature-for-feature -feature match to Mac OS 9, it's no longer a step backward. This version combines much of OS 9's functionality with a collection of improvements that make upgrading to OS X a serious possibility for even dyed-in-the-wool devotees to the classic Mac OS. Uh, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. It, this reminds me, I know that it's, it's too, so hard not to draw these comparisons, but it reminds me so much of Windows when service packs would come out. You know, right. it, it was a classic rule. You don't use Windows until Service Pack 2. The, the impressive part, and I kind of think Apple almost deserves some credit for this, and you can you can kind of get it from just the transition between these two reviews. Look at how much stuff changed. They spent years bumbling around, like tripping over their own feet with other attempts and getting nowhere. And then they pick up this other thing where the work was kind of done for them to get started. And they're like, yeah, okay. We, we just needed that direction. We needed something that we could sit down and be committed to. And then it's, I don't want to say like laser focused, but you can tell they had, they had direction and, and intent. They wanted to get something out and they knew what they wanted to get out. So they built it. Yeah, this is a very different sort of development process. So I've got I've got one more review, and it's Ars Technica again. Back to John. My <laughs> yeah, my boy John's back with a review for 10.1. I want to believe that Mac OS X 10.1 will replace Mac OS 9 in a way that improves upon every aspect of the classic Mac OS user experience. Unfortunately, although this may still come to pass... Mac OS X 10.1 is not that version of Mac OS, but 10.1 improves on 10.0.x in many important ways. Overall, system performance shows the biggest improvement, but it's still not as drastic as some reports may lead you to believe. Other areas have stagnated. The user interface has not made significant strides since 10.0.x. Many annoying bugs remain, and many features have yet to be implemented. Should you purchase Mac OS X 10.1, if you already use and enjoy macOS X 10.0, you should run out and pick up a free 10.1 upgrade CD at your local retailer as soon as possible. If you tried 10.0.x and found it somewhat lacking, I recommend at least giving 10.1 a try to see if the improvements are enough to push you over the edge. 
If you're waiting for the point of no return where Mac OS X is a complete no-brainer upgrade from Mac OS 9, you'll have to wait a little longer. If you plan to run Mac OS X full-time, you should consider upgrading your RAM to what were previously thought of as obscene levels, 512 megabytes or more. It will be the best thing you can do for Mac OS X, short of buying a faster Mac. So that, that one was a little bit more... Not negative, but like there's still Apple's still got to do something here. There's still some work. Well, it's the acknowledgement of reality. It's the, every OS has its like upgrade stage where maybe a new version kind of isn't that good or it's not good enough and you might still be better served by something old, even though maybe upgrading isn't the worst thing in the world. You you can still point to enough flaws where you want you want to hold on to that old thing a little bit longer. And this yeah. is this is still that stage. They're making they're making big improvements, but they haven't necessarily obviated the old thing yet. Yeah. Well it's it's impressive to me how much Apple addressed in just a few months. Mm-hmm. Like the time again, like ten point came out in March of two thousand one. By September we had this patch that doubled performance in a couple areas not the whole system but like some parts of it and added some of the apps people were complaining about that were missing so it's it's impressive to me they got this out relatively quickly which i I guess is why maybe they felt like they could charge for it instead of it just being a patch you downloaded or whatever i mentioned earlier how it was a little bit slow for apps to update to osx even though apple had made it as easy as they possibly could it was still taking companies a while to recompile their apps to be carbonized so they could run on the classic OS and the new one, or just the new one if they wanted. And one of the big holdouts for this first year was Microsoft, because they they had updated Internet Explorer to be OS X native, but Office still ran in the classic environment. And, you know, everyone uses Word and PowerPoint. Mm-hmm. So in November of 2001, this is finally addressed when Microsoft Office was updated for OS X. This is when Microsoft came out with uh, Office version X, which is certainly a product name. (laughs) Yeah. But this is an update that included carbonized versions of Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and Entourage, which was their email app because they didn't have Outlook for some reason. So finally in November... We have the Office apps updated, and that was one of the last big holdouts for Apple. Um, although it's at this point, um, Adobe still had not produced some OS X versions, and that does come later. But Office was a big deal. And then finally, in January of 2002, Apple started shipping all Macs with OS X as the default operating system instead of OS 9. And with that was the acknowledgement that OS X was ready for everyone to use. And with that, our road to OS X finally comes to an end. Indeed. <laughs> this was a lot of fun to research because I'd, I'd gone down these Wikipedia holes a couple times reading about Apple's various attempts in the 90s to make something better than what they had. But going in depth on it and 
reading chunks of Gil Emilio's book and then reading all these reviews for early Mac OS X, it's, it, it's definitely more interesting than I thought it would end up. And I'm still shocked that Apple survived the 90s the more I researched this. Because it seems like they were doing almost everything wrong. Mm-hmm. And it took so long for them to get on track. Yeah, the it it really is a miracle the company survived. Apple was not in a great condition. It it needed help to get through basically an entire decade. And I mean, even once the Mac kind of came back into relevance, sort of on its way back into relevance, even that didn't truly happen for the company. The company still ultimately relied on the iPod first and then eventually the iPhone. It it really yeah. wasn't until the iPhone came out that suddenly the Mac had a reason to exist again. Yeah, and it's telling how good of a core Mac OS X was. It became the software for everything Apple shipped after this point, besides the iPod. The, you know, iPhone, it had the same kernel and a lot of the same software stack as Mac OS X. Right, like if you go back and watch the original conference where Apple introduced the iPhone, they made a big deal like this is running OS X. And, you know, Apple did that again with the iPad and then the Apple Watch and uh, the first Apple TV was just Mac OS X, but with a skin on top. Mm-hmm. And, you know, eventually they switched that over to iOS, which is still kind of based on this. But, like, Apple hasn't had to do this again. They haven't had to make a whole new OS platform from scratch with a whole new kernel and and everything else. Everything they're shipping today is still based on this. So, that's the road to OS X. 